And the title of my message is simply titled after the, the name of this story. Uh, some believe that this is a parable, but Jesus doesn't come right out and say it is. And so I'm of the belief that this is a real story. I think this is an actual event that took place with real people. But you can debate that and it doesn't change the meaning of it. But we're going to look at what's known as the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37 and we haven't done it in a while so let's stand to our feet and read God's word together and give him reverence uh, for allowing us to have a copy of the scriptures in front of us there are many people that have given their lives so that we can have this privilege so let's never take that lightly uh, Luke 10 verse 25 through 37 says this and behold a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life and he said to him what is written in the law how do you read it and he answered You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed and left him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Father, we thank you again for this time to worship. Pray that you would increase and I would decrease and everything done here today would bring you glory and honor for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning. There's a song that some of us who are a little bit older uh, will remember and uh, probably for some of us it brings back a lot of childhood memories. I know it did for me because anytime I would hear, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Nobody was going to sing with me this morning? You know that one. We live in a much different world than 1968 when Fred Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood launched. It's hard to believe it's been that long since that show first aired. But that song is a little jingle that we all remember, uh, or at least some of us do anyway. But it's sad that, you know, In today's world, most people don't know their neighbor. And let's be honest, we don't want to know our neighbors. The the saying, you know, good fences make good neighbors. Uh, We would rather not be bothered with people uh, anymore. And I think social media has only added to that or compounded that problem because we've largely lost the ability to have face-to-face interactions. Everything is electronic now. And I think that that is... Kind of sad that that that's the case. But one thing I found about neighbors is you don't get to choose your neighbors. Uh, You don't get to really choose who's going to live next door to you. And so it's a roll of the dice whether that is going to be somebody that you enjoy or somebody that uh, 
you think, man, I'm ready to sell my house and get new neighbors. Um, and so the lawyer is kind of going to be in that same boat as we look at this story because he wanted to sidestep that question. He couldn't choose who his neighbors were per se, but he wanted to try to find a loophole so he could pick and choose who he wanted to be neighborly to. And I think if we're honest, we do the same thing. Uh, and so as we look at this story today, I want you to notice as we begin in verse 25, he starts out with a good question, but the wrong motives. He starts out with a great question, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's probably the most important question that any human being can ever ask. Uh, but the problem is, he asked that question not because he was genuinely seeking, but because he wanted to test Jesus. You see, oftentimes throughout the Gospels, we find the lawyers, or sometimes referred to as the scribes, trying to put Jesus to a test. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to see if they can't catch him in some kind of of error, if you will. He's supposed to be this great rabbi. He's got these folks following him. And so they want to prove that he is not as great uh, as, as people say he is, that they can trip him up. And so it's, it's interesting to me that as we look at these lawyers, they, they would practice the law, they would interpret the law. And, and when we talk about the law in the Scriptures, we're, we're not speaking so much about the civil law, but we're speaking about the religious law, the, the Mosaic law, the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament where we see all these laws. These lawyers were versed in those things. They knew them. They taught them. They carried them out in the court of law sometimes. And so they were very well versed when it came to this. And, and I think it's interesting that the lawyer was asking a question to trip up Jesus, and the lawyer in his mind already knew the answer. He wasn't asking this question to get information. Again, remember that. That's very important to this story. But one of the things that the lawyer says in his question is key because it's a problem that people today still make. It's a, it's a mistake that people today still make. Look what he says in verse 25. The question is good. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's good that he's asking about eternal life, but most people still today are convinced that it's something that they must do in order to attain it. It's something within our power, within our grasp, that we can do to receive this gift. I think it's interesting that, that the very wording goes against that. If you inherit something, did you earn it? No, it was given to you. What must I do to inherit? Nothing. You receive it. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift given to you. And eternal life is the greatest of those gifts given by grace. We don't do anything to receive it other than repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this lawyer is, is asking a good question, but he's asking it with wrong motives, and he's also asking it with a works-based mindset, which is understandable because the Old Testament law would have been a continual do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. And so Jesus is going to teach him that since the Messiah has come, the law has now been fulfilled or will be fulfilled through Christ, and we can live justified, not by our works, but by grace alone through faith. And so Jesus is going to teach him this lesson and hopefully help us to understand it as well. also want you to notice that when he asked this question to Jesus, 
Jesus didn't respond to him by saying, well, if you want to receive an eternal life, you just ask me into your heart. Jesus didn't say that. And Jesus didn't sit down and say, not that it was written yet, but if it were to have been written, He didn't say, let me walk you through the Romans road. Let me show you the four spiritual truths or the four spiritual laws. Let me, let me go down through this process. And there's not anything wrong that we use those tools today for evangelism. I've used them myself. But I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we're, we're a bit too simplistic or we get the cart in front of the horse. And what do I mean by by that is Jesus is going to teach us a very important lesson when it comes to sharing your faith. And it's something that I learned early on as a pastor, and it's this. You have to get folks lost before they'll ever get saved. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought everybody was lost. Without Christ, you are. But the problem is most people don't know they're lost. They don't know they're lost. The reason why they don't think they need Jesus is they don't think they're that bad. Sure, they've done a few things wrong in their life. Everybody has. I'm not perfect. But God understands. He knows that I'm a work in progress. And so we've got this this bargain going on where I do the best I can. He kind of turns a blind eye when I mess up. And one of these days I'm going to get to heaven and the scales are going to tip in my favor and into glory I'm going to march. That's most people, in America at least, mindset of how you get to heaven. And it couldn't be more wrong and more people, I believe, have went to hell with that kind of attitude than folks that behave like Hitler and Stalin. There's, there's not a whole lot of folks out in the world as evil as Hitler and Stalin, if we're honest. They were the extreme degree of evil. Now we're all evil, and it doesn't matter. There's enough evil in all of us to send us to hell. But nonetheless, most people think that they are good enough to earn God's favor. And Jesus does not say, well, just ask me into your heart and things will be well. He's going to show this lawyer just how wicked he is, just how guilty he is, and that is why he needs a Savior. So notice that Jesus does in verse 26. Where does he take the lawyer to? Right back to the place that the lawyer would have been most familiar with. What is written in what? In the law. What's written in the law? How do you read it? Again, Jesus is going to take him back and show him something that he's known for a long time but he's never seen it through eyes that have been opened by the Spirit of God. You can read this book all your life and until the Holy Spirit opens it up and makes it real and alive to you, it means nothing. I knew Bible verses when I was lost. didn't mean anything because I didn't know the author. I didn't know that this book was living, that it was sharper than a two-edged sword and that it gives life. And so he's going to show this, this lawyer, in the law, you are guilty. This law that you think you know so well is actually condemning you. This law that you think you live by, it's actually going to send you away from the presence of God if you continue to try to live by it alone. The Scriptures tell us in Romans 3, verses 19 and 20, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. For what reason? so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see, the law is going to make all of us guilty if we're living by that. All of us. You just go down through the Ten Commandments and see how many of those you've broken in your life. I guarantee it's all of them. For by the works of the law, no human being... Raise your hand if you're a human being. No human being will be justified. That word justified means to be declared not guilty. So let me read it that way. 
By the works of the law, no human being will be declared not guilty in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You have to realize you're lost before you'll ever turn to Jesus. And that's exactly what he's doing with this lawyer. He's showing him by the law that he is guilty and that he needs something more than just morals. He needs something more than just good works. He needs a Savior. There was a a teacher uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary named Phil Williams. He said this, The law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is. It's not the broom that sweeps it clean. I'm going to read that again and think about what he's saying. The law is the light that reveals how dirty the room is. It is not the broom that sweeps it clean. I've often said that the law is kind of like the check engine light on your car. When that comes on, you know there's a problem. But the check engine light doesn't fix the problem. It just shows you something's wrong. You have to go somewhere to get it taken care of. The law will show us we're guilty, but the law can't make us right. The law only will say you need to get somewhere or to someone that can fix things. And so Jesus goes on. uh, The lawyer answers and cites two passages uh, from from the Old Testament law. One from Deuteronomy, the other from Leviticus. Love the Lord thy God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we think about this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer again answers, well, I think if I do this and I do that, I'm in pretty good shape, Jesus. And Jesus responds in verse 28, No, dummy, just ask me into your heart. Is that what it says? Is that what your version says? No. In verse 28, listen, we just got done saying that the Scriptures just got done saying that the law can't save us. Yet the lawyer responds by saying, I feel like to inherit eternal life, I need to keep the law. Love God, love my neighbor, and I'm in good shape. And look how Jesus responds in verse 28. You've answered correctly. Did Jesus not understand the Scripture? Did He not realize that the law couldn't save anybody that were saved by grace through faith and not of works? Was Jesus confused? He better not be. He was the Son of God. He was the author of these words. So I don't think He was confused. So why on earth did He tell the lawyer, you answered correct? Because He doesn't stop there. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. And that is where the problem with all of us trying to live by the law comes in. It's not knowing what we ought to do. It's doing what we ought to do. If we're honest, even as believers, we don't do what we ought to do all the time. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 talked about that, did he not? The things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I do want to do, I don't. And that whole struggle. And if you're a believer, you know that all too well. The flesh wants one thing. The Spirit says, do something else. And we are in constant conflict with what we ought to do. Knowing it is not the problem. Carrying it out is. There's a, a, a writer uh, from several centuries ago named John Bunyan. You might be familiar with his most famous work, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote a little short poem or whatever you want to call it. But it says this. And it it speaks exactly to this problem that the law tells us what's wrong but can't help us. He wrote these words. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. 
Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. The law tells us what we need to do, but the gospel enables us to do it. The good news of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit gives us the power that we need to actually live the Christian life. Guys, if you're trying today to be right with God by doing all of the good things in your life that you feel you need to do, you have not yet understood how much you need Jesus and how much Jesus will change your life. You are still trying to get to heaven by your own effort and nobody will make it there that way. Nobody will. And so I want you to see a couple of scriptures because Jesus told him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In Leviticus 18, verse 5, that wildly popular book, Leviticus, that nobody reads, it says this, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments. Now listen, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. The problem has never been with the law. Again, in the book of Romans, Paul makes this clear. The law is good. The law came from God. And if it came from God, it must be good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. The problem is with our hearts. The problem is that we don't want what God wants for us. We want what we want for us. The problem is that we want the things of this world rather than the things of heaven. And that struggle is real for the believer, but it's even more real for the lost person because that's all they know is the world and the flesh. So the law is good. The law could give life if anyone were able to keep it perfectly and obey it. But we know by personal experience and by the Scriptures that there's only been one person that's ever walked this earth that kept the law perfectly. And it wasn't you. And it wasn't me. It was Jesus Christ. He was the only man, the God-man, who was able to fulfill the law perfectly. None of us have. And so we fall into the problem that Paul describes to the church in Galatia, in the book of Galatians. Listen to what he says there in Galatians 3, verse 10. He says that all, that includes us here in K. Russo Baptist Church today, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Raise your hand if you don't want to be under a curse. I don't either. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now here's where it gets really troubling. You say, well, I'm a good person. I do a lot of good things. I'm really not all that bad. You, you don't get that option. If, if you are living by the law, the Bible says that you're cursed if, what did it say? Who does not abide by all things. If you're guilty in one spot, you're guilty of breaking it all. Anybody feel comfortable and confident with that standard? Because that's what you're trying to live under this morning apart from Christ. If you are depending on you and your good deeds and your good morals, you better be batting a thousand. And I don't think anybody in here is. Matter of fact, I know you're not. He goes on a little bit later in Galatians 3.24 and says, Wherefore, and this is key, Wherefore the law 
What was the purpose? The law was, the King James uses the word schoolmaster. I think that's a good translation. It was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Some translations say it was our tutor or our guardian. It literally takes us by the hand and says, come with me and let me show you how you can be right before God. Notice how he, he finishes that verse. That we might be justified by what? By faith. By faith. It's not in the keeping of the law because we can't. So we have to be justified another way. And that is by placing our faith in the one man who did keep the law perfectly. So that he can declare us righteous. Because he kept the standard. And he laid down his life. So that our sins could be paid for by his sacrifice. And our righteousness could be given to us from his perfect account. You see how beautiful that is? Martin Luther called that the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus took our sins and gave us His righteousness. Do you see how great of a gift that is? I hope you're beginning to understand how guilty you are apart from Jesus. Look, you're not going to get to heaven and, and have a conversation with God and say, well, here's all my good works, Lord. Here's, here's all the good I've done. And I know I've done some bad, but let's, let's weigh this out. And I can, I'm sure that I'm going to be good enough. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's the reality of it. There's not going to be a conversation. The conversation you need to have with Christ needs to happen now. If you wait until you stand before Him, it's too late. You won't stand before Him as Savior. You'll stand before Him as judge. Today is the day of salvation. And He's trying to get this lawyer to understand it's not by keeping the law. It's not by your good works that you are saved. It's by placing your faith in the very man that he was having the conversation with. The one that he was trying to put to the test. He was the Savior. And Jesus is trying to get him to see that. Jesus and the Scriptures tell us in verse 29 that this lawyer, not only was he trying to test Jesus, but he was trying to justify himself. He comes to Jesus and he says, Well, I think to inherit eternal life, if I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and my neighbor as myself, I will have done good enough to be able to be justified and receive eternal life. And Jesus says, okay, if that's what you think, go and do that. And so then the lawyer starts to think in verse 29, he says he wants to justify himself. So he switches gears and he says, well, maybe I can try to manipulate this a little bit and say, well, I love my neighbor, but my neighbor's not everybody. Like, if I don't, if I don't like Brother George, I'll just say he's not my neighbor. I like Austin, he's my neighbor. I don't like George, he's not my neighbor. And, and I got out of it, see? And that's how we twist the Scriptures. We make it say what we want it to say to justify our lifestyle. You don't get to say what the Scriptures say. They say what they say from the mouth of God. Whether you agree with it or not, it's true. If the Bible calls it sin, it's sin. You can change, you can change murder and call it abortion. You can change sexual perversion and call it a choice. I don't care what you want to do with it. It's just semantics. But at the end of the day, if the Bible says it's sin, it's sin. And you're not going to win that argument with a holy God. And so you're either going to bow your knee in this life or you're going to bow your knee in the next. But every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the reality and that is the seriousness of where you stand today. So he switches gears. And like I said, he trying to justify himself. And before we condemn the lawyer, if we're honest, we do the same thing. There are often times where we try to switch things up a little bit. Try to change the word. It, it's, 
we excuse ourselves when we read certain passages like forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and we say oh well Jesus understands I can't be at church just Christmas and Easter and he's okay with that you know it's all right um, the Bible says don't use foul or abusive language some of you if, if, if I were able to get audio files of your conversations or your snaps or whatever and put them on that screen you'd probably never come back here again you'd be so embarrassed but God heard everything you said but you justify it well we're just cutting up we're just having fun it's just harmless talk around the water cooler at work you know it doesn't matter there's no loopholes in this stuff Bible says don't gossip and yet we go out first time we hear something we can't wait to run and tell somebody somebody's business what happened Bible says that sex is reserved for a husband and a wife yet 80% of folks that claim to be Christians are having sex before marriage because we try to justify well I'm gonna marry him anyway God knows I love him so doesn't matter if I do this now because he's okay with it over and over I could go on we know what we need to do but we don't do it and then we try to justify why we don't do it and it's time that we get serious about it it's not it's not a small thing guys disobeying God is not a little thing it's a big deal and it'll have eternal consequences if you continue to do it apart from Christ. And so, in the book of Proverbs, verse 28, 13, I think this is a, a good statement as we transition into this story. It says, whoever conceals, that means literally clothes, covers like with a robe, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Remember when you were little, or maybe you have kids or grandkids now, and they wanted to play hide-and-seek? And they would run. You'd start counting, cover your eyes, and they'd run. And sometimes they would, they would find a blanket, or they'd get in the bed, and they'd throw the covers over them. And they'd think they were hiding. And you walk in the room, and there's this big lump under the covers. And you're like, you're like oh, I don't know where they could be. Where are they? You know, you're playing along. You don't want to act like you see this big lump under the covers. That's what we look like trying to hide from God with our sin. It's, I mean, you know, we're not hiding from God. Think about that, that verse. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. We're like the kids with the blanket pulled over our head thinking we're hiding from God with our sins. It's ridiculous. He sees everything. He knows everything. And until you confess and get things right, your life is never going to be where it needs to be. So why not just turn to a, a Lord that loves you and shows grace and mercy to you and says, come to me and I will forgive you and pardon you. You don't have to pull the blankets over your head. I will shine light on you and clothe you in my righteousness and make you pure and holy in my sight. Why would you not want that? Why would you not receive that gift? And so he goes into this story uh, that we read about the Good Samaritan. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on that story because I think most sermons I've ever heard preached on this focus in on that story and I think we know it very well obviously the priest and the Levite were the respected folks in the religious community of the Jews and the Jews would have thought that those would have been the upstanding citizens the keepers of the law the ones that would have shown the most mercy but they see this guy and they for whatever reason they cross the street and just don't give him the time of day and then the dreaded Samaritan the ones that the Jews hated more than anybody comes along and he bandages up this guy he gives him two denarii which is two days worth of uh, wages and says if if he needs more i'll take care of it i'll pay it he puts him on his own animal he bandages him up he does everything for this guy 
And so Jesus is showing this man, remember the question, who is my neighbor? Well, he would have not as a, as a good Jew wanted to call any Samaritan his neighbor. They hated each other. And so the Samaritan would not have been his neighbor. But the problem is, when I've heard this sermon preached over and over throughout the years, I think people walk away with the wrong idea about what it means to be a believer. Because if we're not careful, again, we read that story and we reduce Christianity down to just good morals and good deeds. And again, as Christians, we ought to be the ones leading the charge when it comes to doing good works and loving our neighbor. But we do those things because we ourselves have been transformed. We do those things not to get to the cross, but because we've already been to the cross and now we're working from that. We're not working our way to it. And so, for so many people, this story is just reduced down to just a moralistic thing of good works. And if that's the case, my friends, then Jesus isn't the only way. There's many ways. Because there's all sorts of religions that teach good works are the way to God. Right? The Buddhist is right. The Hindu is right. The atheist is right. So long as they do good deeds and live a fairly productive and healthy life. If that's all it is, guys then Jesus was mistaken when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by Me. He was wrong. Christianity is very, very inclusive. One way. It's exclusive that all can come, but it's inclusive. There's only one way you can come. There's not multiple doors. Anybody can come through the door, which is Christ, and receive Him by faith but you can't jump in over the wall. You've got to come in the one way. You've got to receive the one person that can save you, and that's Jesus. And that's why this message is so unpopular. Because the world doesn't want one way. It wants any way that floats your boat. And according to Jesus, that's not how this works. He's either the Savior of all, or He's the Savior of none. He is either the only sacrifice for sin, or there are multiple paths. You've got to decide today. Are you going to trust Jesus? Or are you going to follow the way of the world? I want to give you a story from one of my favorite preachers from days gone by, D.L. Moody. And the story, I wrote it down just so I could read it and not mess it up. It goes like this. It says, while D.L. Moody was attending a convention in Indianapolis on mass evangelism, he asked his song leader, Ira Sankey, to meet him at 6 o'clock one evening at a certain street corner. When Sankey arrived, Mr. Moody, Mr. Moody asked him to stand on a box and sing. Once a crowd had gathered, Moody spoke briefly, and then he invited the people to follow him to a nearby convention hall. Soon the auditorium was filled with spiritually hungry people, and the great evangelist preached the gospel to them. Then the convention delegates, the leadership and whatnot, began to arrive. Moody stopped preaching and said, Now we must close, as the brethren, the leaders of the convention, want to come and discuss the topic, how to reach the masses. He had already shown them exactly how to do that. They didn't need to stop and have a meeting. They didn't need to have a convention. It says, Moody graphically illustrated the difference between talking about doing something and going out and doing it. The lawyer wanted to talk about who is my neighbor? But Jesus showed him 
how to be a neighbor to anyone, including folks that as a Jew he would have had nothing to do with. You don't get to choose who you love. You don't get to choose who you show grace towards. We are called to love everyone, including our enemies, including those that are difficult, because we were enemies of God, and we were difficult and are difficult, and God lavished grace on us. He showed us mercy when we didn't deserve it. How can we not now as believers live that kind of life out before a lost and dying world? How can we not show grace to people? And so Jesus tells him this story and we'll, we'll close with this. He goes on down at the end of the story and He asks the man in verse 36, who do you think is the neighbor out of these men in this story? The Samaritan, the priest, the Levite? And He said, the one who showed that man mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. That's in the present tense. That means you go and you do it and you keep on going and you keep on doing it. It's not a one-time thing. You don't show somebody grace once in your life and say, well, glad I checked that box off. I'm good now. It's the way of life. We are to continually go and serve others. Care for others. Meet the needs of others. Again, not to be saved. But because we are saved, if your life is no different, you say you've met Jesus and you're the same person, there's something wrong. There's something wrong if you have met the resurrected Christ and your life has not been changed. If you don't have new affections and new desires and new wants, then something is missing from your life. It's quite possible that you claim to be saved and you're not. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you are. Does Jesus say you're a Christian? And does your fruit bear witness that you are different? We all fall short. I'm not preaching a message of sinless perfection. I'm saying as your desires and affections changed, when you sin, is there conviction? Do you repent? Or do you excuse it and justify it? Or do you even care about it? If you don't, there's a problem. Go and do likewise. In John 13.35, Jesus told His disciples, by this all people will know that you're My disciples if you have love for one another. One of the greatest evidence that we are changed is that we love people radically and differently than the world. We don't just love people who can do stuff for us. We don't just love people because it benefits us. We love the least of these. We love folks that can't do anything back for us in return. Because God loved us when we couldn't offer Him anything except our sinful mess. And that's what He wanted. And that's what He wants today. He wants you. He doesn't want anything more from you than you to, for you to give your life to Him. And say, Lord, I, I need You. I understand I'm lost and I want to follow You. That is what Christ requires from you today. Not your good works. Not your money. Not your time. Not your talent. Those are all things that we use after we're saved. But God doesn't require those of you to know Him. He wants you to surrender your life in repentance and faith. In 1 John 3.18, the Bible says, Little children... John's writing to believers. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. It's easy to say things. It's easy to talk about things. But do we lead by example? Do we live by example? Our actions speak louder than our words, right? We need to preach the Gospel. We need to proclaim the truth. Unapologetically, we stand on the Word of God. 
as believers. At least we better. But that's not where it ends. If all we do is talk and it never leads to action, then faith without works is dead. There's a problem. The way that we think and the way that we talk ought to be the way that we live. And not just on Sundays from 11 to noon. So many people come in through these doors and it's like Halloween. You've got this mask on. You pretend that you're okay and you're not. You're dying on the inside. You sinned just this morning or you sinned last night or you sinned all week and you come in here and you think, I've got to act right because the youth pastor is sitting here and his wife's sitting here and we've got to act like we're perfect, perfect kids. And so we're going to sit here and pretend that we're good and we didn't, we didn't do anything wrong all week. And you know that's a lie. I know that's a lie. They know that's a lie. And yet we do that as adults. We come in here and we've had, a, we've had all sorts of problems. We're having all sorts, our faith has been tested. Maybe we're to a point where we barely even believe anymore. But we come in here and we say, I've got to put on a smile and I've got to sing the song because pastor's watching and I want him to make sure, I don't want him to come up and talk to me and ask me if anything's wrong. And so I'm going to pretend and I want to just get out of here. I wish he'd hurry up and give the invitation right now so I could leave. Guys, that, that, imagine if you were sick and you went to the ER and you sat in a room and you sat there and you sat there and every time they came over and wanted to get your information, you said, no, I'm, I'm not here. And then you went back home sick and you came back next week and did that again. Is that dumb? Well, it's, it's just as dumb to come to the spiritual hospital on Sunday with all your sin and all your mess, and Jesus is here saying, I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. There's people here that will weep with you and rejoice with you, that will love you and walk through trials with you, and you say, no, I'm good. You're not good, and we know you're not good. Pastor's not always good. I'm going to tell you a secret. There are Sundays that I don't feel like being here. There are Sundays I don't feel like preaching. You know why? Because life ain't always easy for me either. You know why? Pastors have doubts sometimes. Pastors struggle. Maybe you've never had a pastor stand up here and be real with you, but I'm going to be transparent. And if if that's not the kind of pastor you're looking for, then I'm sorry, but that's who I am. And I'm going to tell you that there are times when all of us struggle. Just because God calls you into a spot in ministry does not mean that you're immune from those things. And I need you all to pray for me. There's times when I need to be at the altar confessing my sins. Okay? So we're not immune from this thing. So you don't have to come in here and pretend to be somebody you're not. Because God already knows. And if we're honest, we know. We know that everybody in here has got stuff going on. It's part of life. But I'm glad I'm a part of a church family where I can take my burdens and my cares and there are people that will help me carry them when I can't do it on my own. And if you need a place, I pray that Carusa will be that place for you. And if you're lost today, I pray that you know that Jesus will forgive you. I don't care what you've done. There's no clause in here. The only unforgivable sin is your unbelief. There's no sin that can't be forgiven except your unbelief. That's it. If you die in your unbelief, you cannot be forgiven. But anything else that you do is forgivable. If you'll look to Christ. When the Spirit is drawing you, if He's drawing you this morning, if He's saying, look, Today is the day where you can meet Jesus and you can have a relationship with Jesus and He will change you and He will keep changing you and He will save you and forgive you. If that is real to you for the first time today, then when we give this hymn of invitation in a minute, I pray that you will come and have a conversation with me or just get down on your face and have a conversation with God. I can't save you, but He most certainly can. And He's willing to and He's ready to. The question is, are you willing to surrender to Him?
If you are, then this story gives us this great illustration that we all need Jesus and Jesus is pointing to the fact that I'm right here in front of you. It's not about the good works that you do. It's about me. You'll do the good works as a result of those things. And so I challenge you today, God puts people in our life every day. We have an opportunity as believers to show them the love of Jesus. We get to be the good Samaritan, if you will, to folks each and every day. But how many times do we miss that opportunity? I'm glad that we as a church can do things like feeding the hungry. We put out food boxes and we buy kids gifts for Christmas and we try to get out and do things all throughout the year. But listen, if, if you wait for K. Russo Baptist Church or Pastor Chris to plan some kind of event so that you can go out and help somebody, you're falling short for your own individual walk. We want to do those things corporately. I believe that's part of the church's responsibility as a body is to go out and meet needs. But we have the same responsibility as individuals. Our church can't reach every single person. But you all have people in your circle that you can reach. And maybe through you, they will become part of this body. That's how the church grows. Very rarely does a church grow through an outreach. I talk about this all the time. Think about it over the years, if you're honest about it. Think about every church you've ever belonged to and all of the harvest parties and the Easter egg hunts and the Christmas dinners. And, and I'm not against those things. I love doing them. But have you ever had a... We used to have harvest parties where four, five, six hundred people would come. In one night, in a few hours, four, five, six hundred people would walk through our doors. You know how many came back? In all the years that we did that, you know how many I saw come back? None. And so I've gotten to the point now where I say, when we do those events, we're not doing it with the mindset that they're going to come back tomorrow. While we got them here, we're going to tell them about Jesus right, right now. We've got to tell them about Jesus now because they're not coming back tomorrow to hear about Jesus. They may not live to see tomorrow to hear about Jesus. And so when we get an opportunity, guys, today is the day we're given. Let's use it for His glory. So Jesus showed mercy. This Samaritan showed mercy. And I pray that today you will show mercy when you leave here to people that God puts in your path. So as we close, I'm going to invite the praise team to come. We're going to pray. And then the altar is open. The Holy Spirit is moving. You know what you need to do. The decision is up to you at this point. So let's pray. Father, we come to you grateful that you love us and grateful that you give us an opportunity. Grateful that you show us mercy. Lord, we are like that man beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And many religious people, many church people walk by and don't even tell us about Jesus, don't even care about us. But yet here comes one that loves us, bandages up our wounds, cares for us, shows us mercy and grace. And what a picture of Christ that is, that He would come along and find us lost and undone and give us love and hope. And so, Lord, today as we go into this invitation, it's my prayer that broken people would come and be made whole, that lost people would come and be found, and, Lord, that You would have Your way in their hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and as we sing.